Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 7th of January 2019 and this is episode 95. This is the first programme of the new year 2019 and a happy new year to you all. On today's programme, historian Ross Beadle talks about the rise of Sir William Woolley Robinson and his appointment to the role of Chief of the Imperial General Staff in December 1915. I spoke to Ross from his home in England. Hi Ross, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about how you became interested in Wally Robinson and his role in the Great War? Well, thank you for inviting me onto the onto the podcast. The short answer is that I saw the expression, the Kitchener-Robertson Agreement, December 1915, in a book I was reading, and kind of one thing led to another. You'll be hearing all about that, what the Kitchener-Robertson Agreement was later in the story. But it's fair to say its position is that it was an absolute precondition of Robertson taking the position of Chief of the Imperial General Staff in December 1915. And just for for the listeners' sake, from here on in, I'm going to call it Chiggs rather than Chief of the Imperial General Staff, as that saves just a little bit of time. Um, Obviously, the main thing about Robertson is, is that his humble origins sort of catch the eye. In what we're hopefully going to talk a bit more about today are the three rapid promotions that he had in the first 18 months of the war, which uh, were very significant in terms of the British strategy during the war. Before we talk about Robinson's military career before his appointment as Chiggs, or Chief of the Imperial General Staff, can you tell us about his family background? Well, he's not Scottish, despite his name. He was born in 1861 in Lincolnshire, and he retained that accent all his life. Uh, He was known by all, slightly patronisingly, I sometimes think, as Wally. And he joined the army as a teenager. Um, His first job was actually as a footman in the local big house. Uh, But he always said he he was a rotten footman. Um, His mother, who was a very strong minded person, didn't want him to join the army. But eventually he did. The other thing to say about him at this stage is is his build, his physical build. He wasn't your classic soldier. Uh, He was of medium height, but he had immensely powerful upper body, a real blacksmith's body. In fact, one of his colleagues described him as an ambulating uh, refrigerator. However, even though he had this slightly unusual build, it didn't prevent him being uh, once voted the best turned out officer in India. So Robinson is really interesting because he remains the only soldier, as far as I know, to to rise from the very lowliest ranks to the very highest. Um, He rose, as his autobiography says, from from private to field marshal. What were the circumstances making it possible uh, for him to do this and how did he do it? Well, obviously, yes, it is the most uh, eye-catching part of his career. And he is the only man to have gone from the very bottom position. He was joined as a trooper and he finished in 1921 as a field marshal. The first thing to say, the, the, the army was becoming more meritocratic in the 1870s, following some reforms by a Gladstone minister called Cardwell. But Wally, and Wally was further helped by the fact that uh, he moved to India where it was easier. Becoming an officer was still an expensive business. You didn't have to pay for a commission necessarily, but you still had the expense of an officer's lifestyle. By being in India, Wally had a, be- had a better chance because it was cheaper to live out there. 
but he still turned down the opportunity more than once because he didn't think he could afford it. Even after he finally took the exams and easily passed uh, and, uh, and being commissioned, he could still often only afford to drink water um, in the officer's mess when the rest of his colleagues were drinking champers. It's a measure of his, his strength at the time, though, that while he was an officer and they were socialising or doing some of the cavalry stuff, he learnt six separate Indian languages. He was extremely hardworking. Um, in the 1890s, he was talent spotted by a guy called General Nicholson, who was his predecessor of, as Chiggs, uh, and he was moved into intelligence and staff work in the early 90s, early 1900s. Uh, he was known as uh, the most intelligent man in the army at one point, and he rose to command the staff college at Camberley. And then at the outbreak of war, he was earmarked uh, because what happened at the outbreak of war was a, a lot of the general staff went off to France creating vacancies. And he was earmarked for the position of director of military operations or DMO based in London. But then events took a hand. He did not rise through the uh, fashionable or expensive regiments that uh, other officers did. It was a strange situation in uh, the 1900s because there were these reforms but initiated by a guy called Lord Isha, uh, which created the general staff. And this, but a lot of officers weren't quite sure what the general staff was for. And these were the officers in the fashionable regiments who did all the social things. But Wally went up through the intelligence and strategy route, which meant he was not in those fashionable regiments. Um, Lloyd George um, was to criticise him in his memoirs that Robertson had risen through an administrative route and not a fighting one. And certainly that was also the reason why he didn't get the job of heading up the BEF, which went to Hague instead, because he'd actually not commanded a fighting unit at that point. But as I say, by at the outbreak of war, he was earmarked to be DMO. And what a, a very good comment from Hankey, you know, who went on to be the first cabinet secretary. What they said about Robertson, what Hankey said about Robertson, was that he knew what he wanted and he usually got it. At the outbreak of war, instead of becoming a director of military operations, as he expected, he was appointed to be quartermaster general of the BEF. How was that? And could you tell us what the quartermaster of the BEF did? Well, we'll come on to what the, the position was uh, beforehand, because it's this point in Robertson's story that we have to appreciate that for much of his career, and certainly during the war itself, he was in direct competition with Sir Henry Wilson. He had succeeded Wilson as head of the Staff College, and he was expecting to follow Wilson as a DMO uh, in 1914, because uh, Wilson was DMO at the outbreak. And yet within 18 months of the war's outbreak, three times Robertson was promoted, in part because he was the alternative to Wilson. Wilson had ultra-conservative, ultra-unionist, sorry, views and had been deeply involved in the Curra mutiny that happened just before the outbreak of war. And as a result, Asquith in particular was vehemently opposed to Wilson having a senior position in the government. And you can understand why that was. So uh, as a result, Robertson was uh, often perceived as being uh, the, the, the alternative candidate to Wilson. Not just He wasn't just because a second best to Wilson, but he was the obvious alternative to Wilson. It ought to be said that Wilson himself was a terrible snob. Um, and who looked down his nose at Wally and regarded him as underbred. And he protested when Robertson was appointed to the position of the Staff College. 
So let's go through these three instances then, when Wilson and Robertson were in direct competition. And in each instance, Robertson was given the position. In August 1914, when the general staff vacated London en masse to be the officers in France, Wilson was earmarked for chief of staff of the BEF, and Archibald Murray was earmarked for quartermaster general, which is the position in charge of supply and logistics to the BEF. But Asquith vetoed Wilson and appointed Murray instead to be chief of staff. This created a vacancy as QMG and Robertson was appointed to the position of QMG. During the Great Retreat, uh, the long retreat from Mons, Robertson showed himself to be well superior to many of the others in the BEF by providing the supplies and the logistical support that the BEF needed during that retreat. And that's when he first really appeared as one of the, the officers who was very, very competent, administratively very, very competent. Then, of course, Sir Archibald Murray, as chief of, the, of, the, of staff to the BEF, had a bit of a nervous breakdown, had a health collapse and had to retire. So he created the vacancy for a second time. Again, Wilson was overlooked and Robertson took the job. The thing was that Robertson actually uh, didn't want the job. Uh, he didn't think he could work with Sir John French, who he didn't think was very good. And so he was more than content to stay where he was and had to be persuaded and almost bullied to take the job of chief of staff. And even in fact, when he was uh, working with Sir John French, they didn't socialise at all. They ate and, and worked in separate messes. His relationship with French was, was very poor. And famously, when... Uh, King George asked him what he thought of St. John French. Robertson and Denard and thought, you know, tried to avoid the difficult subject and then basically said that Sir John French was rubbish um, because he just couldn't resist telling the absolute truth to his monarch, who he had a very good relationship. Right, the key about Robertson was he was an extremely good networker, uh, just extremely good at working the, the organisation. He had a very good relationship with the monarchy because who, who, he'd, he'd worked closely with them before the war. But you can't get from being a private to being a field marshal without being a good worker of the system. So that, um, you know, knowing how this institution works, knowing how to get on. And he was very good at that. So in 1915, then, having initially started as quartermaster general, he becomes in March chief of staff to the BEF. Here, he excels considerably because he's confident of victory. The third instance where he's competed with um, Henry Wilson was in December 1915, when he's appointed to be chief of the Imperial General Staff. Although by then, Robertson was head and shoulders the superior candidate. By no way was he, um, was he uh, not going to be made chief of the Imperial General Staff. This raises the sort of kind of tricky question that was Asquith right to veto Wilson? Was chief of the Imperial General Staff the right job for Robertson's many talents? Um, it's arguable that Asquith's stance had repercussions beyond Wilson's exclusion. Robertson had extremely good organising and analytical skills. That's why he'd risen through. Uh, once we came to war and the ability to organise and uh, a war was paramount, he'd risen up. But And these skills might just have been more use in the BEF in France. The operation and planning issues that beset the BEF uh, before Somme, before Third Ypres, before Cambrai, could have all been avoided if he'd been in France, and in particular, if he'd brought with him his intelligence chief, McDonough, because he, Haig's team of Kigel and Charteris have often been criticised. The other point is that Haig liked to surround himself with compliant gentlemen like Kigel and Charteris, and unlike them, Robertson would not have been compliant. 
and would have told Haig unwelcome truths, which is maybe one reason why Haig was to lobby for him to be in London. Conversely, Wilson might have just done a decent job in London as chief of the Imperial General Staff, as he, was, uh, he found politicians easier company than Robertson did. So in December 1915, Robertson was appointed chief of the Imperial General Staff. What was the purpose and remit of this position? The position, it was a new one. It had been uh, only created in response to the perceived command problems that had happened during the Boer War. A chap called Lord Isha, who we shall come up against again, set up a very small committee, he insisted on that, and came up with a series of reforms, which included a general staff modelled on the great German general staff, although not as powerful as that one. And also it created this brand new position, the chief of the Imperial General Staff. However, the position was poorly defined. Each holder sort of defined it in a different way. It was quite strong when General Nicholson was in charge, but when General Douglas was in charge, the job virtually disappeared. One of the key elements to the position was that it was anticipated that should war break out, the chief of the Imperial General Staff automatically became commander of the BEF in France or wherever. And although French wasn't strictly chief of the Imperial General Staff when the war broke out, he was made up to um, become commander of the BEF. Uh, this was always on the assumption that the war would be short and they wouldn't need uh, much administrative and strategic support in London. But of course, the war wasn't short. And so there was a very sharp vacuum in London in the way of strategic advice to the government when you can must consider that the obviously the conditions of the war were completely unexpected there was nobody to advise the government nor represent the army viewpoint um, in 1915 the job holder was a guy called Sir James Wolfe Murray uh, who was called sheep by Churchill which is a bit of a clue and he merely deferred to Kitchener as Secretary of State for War and, and the position of uh, Chigs and the role of the general staff virtually became redundant. It ceased to exist. The problem was that because of Kitchener's authority, his moral authority, and his position in the cabinet, strategy, strategic discussion essentially moved up and into the cabinet and was decided around a very large cabinet table. Now, within months, and I, th I sometimes think this is something that general readers don't appreciate, that actually Kitchener was hugely unpopular within weeks of his appointment. Asquith knew it was going to be a risk. He was used to being a solo operator working in quite small operations. He just was not used to working in the collective environment. Uh, he was secretive, ill-informed, he took decisions contrary to what Cabinet had already agreed. Cabinet had agreed to um, not do another offensive in the in France by mid-1915. Uh, he went and agreed to loose without further consulting Cabinet. So they were by, by September, October, they were extremely displeased with him, I think is the kindest way of putting it. At the same time, Robertson in France was hated the level of political involvement in military decisions. He thought it was what was led to misguided ventures like the Dardanelles. He thought the absence of focus was totally down to the fact that the strategy was being decided around a, a, a large table containing a lot of politicians. Robertson loathed politicians. 
um, of all kinds. So as a result, he became, began lobbying for change. I think it wasn't that he was just appointed because the job became vacant and he was the best man. Robertson actively intervened to campaign for the job. He didn't want the job for his own personal advancement. He wanted the job because he saw that it was crucial to changing the strategy of the British government. As a result, when anybody came to see him, he was um, he was uh, he spoke to them and uh, and made his case that there had to be changes. It ought to be said that Asquith was equally unhappy with, with the state of affairs and the position of chief of the Imperial General Staff and the fact that the General Staff was almost defunct. In September 1915, as a first step, he ordered Kitchener to recreate the General Staff and insisted on the dismissal of Wolf Murray and his replacement with Archibald Murray, who was his deputy at the time. Why did the position become vacant and why was Robertson appointed to become a chief of the Imperial General Staff? Well, he has shown proven ability, was the first one. James Edmonds, who later wrote the or compiled the official history and was on Haig's staff in early 1916, said, we have not discovered a single good general, star, general or staff officer except Sir William Robertson. He was then on Haig's, as I say, he was then on Haig's staff, which is a kind of curious thing to say, but it captures it. By the end of 1915, Haig was recognised by the politicians as the preeminent fighting general. And anyway, because of his lack of ability to speak coherently, was deemed not really suitable to working in London regularly. Robertson, on the other hand, was recognised as the most obvious candidate to be to be a proper a chief of the Imperial General Staff. But the other thing was, uh, they were not, he was, obviously, the other two factors were, he was, were who he was not. He was not Henry Wilson. And Henry Wilson, apart from his problems with regards to the current incident, was perceived as being in the pocket of the French. He was very pro-French. And uh, even though that's a slightly unfair judgment, the perception of the politicians was that if they wanted somebody to stand up to the French, and it was more likely to be Robertson. The second key thing it thing in it was that he wasn't Archibald Murray. Archibald Murray was a temporary appointment and immediately showed that he didn't have the strength of personality, the strength of uh, the, mere, the, the moral courage to stand up to the very strong personalities that were around the uh, cabinet table. And there was a key meeting here on October the 11th, 1915. The Dardanelles Committee was the subcommittee formed by the cabinet for the day-to-day -day management of the war. It was called the Dardanelles Committee because Obviously, that had been the premier consideration in 1915, but it actually considered all elements of strategy. Uh, it met on October the 11th, and Murray, unlike his predecessor, presented a full appreciation of the military uh, situation. This was a, a very good document, except Kitchener had got to him in advance and made him change his recommendations so that the recommendations were totally in the face of the logic of the paper. The paper said, we should be fighting on the Western Front. Kitchener's recommendations bolted on the end, said, but I want 150,000 troops in Egypt, which were obviously quietly earmarked for the Dardanelles. And obviously this was completely in the face of the logic of the paper because the paper was, those troops would have come from the Western Front. There was a long and fractious argument dominated by Lloyd George uh, about where these 150,000 troops be used. Robertson was at the meeting because the focus of the meeting was Serbia, actually, because the Germans had just invaded. 
and Robertson was acknowledged as a Balkan specialist. When he was asked his opinion, Robertson said, absolutely, we should fight in France. Sending troops to Egypt was a waste of time and effort. We should concentrate on the main effort, main enemy, which is always his central point. You had to defeat the main enemy first. If you fought battles elsewhere, you killed the troops belonging to your main enemy's allies, but not your main enemy. That meant that he was contradicting two people around the table who were both technically superior to him, but he didn't hesitate, which is exactly what Asquith was looking for, because it wasn't just Kitchener he wanted standing up to, it was people like Lloyd George. So the result was that Asquith took Robertson aside privately and had a couple of private meetings with him and asked him to lay down his thoughts. At this point, it's crucial that Robertson made it absolutely clear to Asquith that this wasn't just about changing strategy, you know, where does Britain fight? The key question. It was about levels of authority, that he was not prepared to be chief of the Imperial General Staff if it was just a puppet job. It had to be a job with the real authority to do the job. Asquith said, OK, go. So this is not just about where the war is fought. This is about how do you construct the body that decides the strategy that then in turn decides you know, where we should fight. Although Robertson was fully in the expectation that if you got the right body of people deciding, you would get the decision that he wanted. So him into obviously Asquith asked um, Robertson to come up with his ideas. So what did Robertson put forward? Well, first of all, you have to understand kind of what was his thinking behind his proposals. As I said, he was mainly thinking about the structure of the decision making as much as anything else. Even though he clearly stated he was a Westerner and the government knew exactly what it was getting in that respect, he conceded that the government's job was to decide what the purpose of the war was and where to fight. In other words, what was the main place you sent the troops? But thereafter, it was down to the army to manage that war. As far as it was regarded, and this was a mantra he repeated on a number of occasions, war was a one-man show. So a cabinet was just too big to be commander-in-chief, although he could just about work with a war committee made up of the key ministers. And this would be what he called a supreme directing authority. The chief of the general staff was to be the only military advisor, one authoritative channel, that's what he called. And crucially, he wanted the Chigs to be the only provider of military information. That way, he felt he could control also the question of where the uh, army fought. Uh, he had a, a little model for this, but he based it on, and he told this to General Clive um, in, in, a, in a ride with him in, in December. He modelled it on the German system. And as, he, as far as he was concerned, the war committee of five or six people was equivalent to Kaiser Wilhelm I, who fought the German Wars of Independence. He was von Moltke, that's the elder von Moltke, and uh, Kitchener would be von Roon, who was uh, uh, who was the Minister of War at the time. And he took that triumvirate as his model. Um, Asquith accepted this structure. It ought to be, uh, so he proposed this to Asquith, uh, that Jigs should be the sole military advisor, backed by a revived general staff, with better quality people there, because general staff is made up mainly of people known as dugouts, retired officers who were brought back out of retirement. Um, and that he made it absolutely clear that the Western Front would be his would be the, the main thing. Now as I said before, Robert was not Robertson was not personally ambitious. Um, he didn't desperately want to be chief of the general general staff. He would have preferred to stay in France. But he thought it was such a mess that it had to be sorted out and he looked around him, looked at his peers and thought 
I'm the only one who can sort this out. So he, in fact, inflicted an extremely painful thing on himself, namely two years of working closely with politicians who he despised uh, because he felt it, he was the one to do the job on behalf of the army. But also he was aided by the fact that after the Battle of Luce and the failure at Luce, uh, the army was in almost open revolt. Many wanted rid of French and Kitchener and thought Murray was not up to the job. Uh, and Robertson, to all intents and purposes, conspires with Haig so that Haig lobbied in his, on his behalf in London. He went across to London on the 29th of November and saw a series of senior politicians, including Asquith and Bona Law, and lobbied that um, Robertson should be made chief of the Imperial General Staff. Conversely, Robertson lobbied on Haig's behalf to replace French. But there was a, a broad consensus that uh, he was the man for the job. And even French and Isha both proposed him to for the position in conversations with uh, Asquith. The great problem was how to uh, deal with Kitchener. Uh, how, do, how do they sideline him while keeping him within the government? Because he was still extremely popular, uh, particularly with the working classes. And he was seen, obviously, as the embodiment of the war effort and so crucial to, vo to recruitment because it was still a voluntary army at that point. We hadn't yet got conscription. Asquith had initially sent him on a kind of spurious mission to evaluate Gallipoli. And despite blandishments on Asquith's um, part, he'd returned. Uh, on the 23rd of November, he sent a message from at the Far East or the Middle East, saying that he was coming back. And uh, Francis Stevenson, Lloyd George's secretary, records in her diary that there was utter and deep gloom in the cabinet as a result of Kitchener announcing he was returning. And they spent more time on that than on discussing Gallipoli. But Robertson at that time was in London quite a lot, being, as being informally used as a sounding board, obviously in preparation for him taking the job. And he wrote back to Hague at the time, it's all gone mad here in London. But their problem was, how do you deal with Kitchener when he's physically tired, he's emotional, and he's rather prone to resign? They knew they had to keep him on board because uh, in November there'd been a bit of a rumour that he was leaving the government and there'd been a story in the Globe newspaper that he'd resigned. This is when he went out to the Mediterranean. And there was a complete uproar. So Asquith knew somehow he had to switch the authority from Kitchener to Robertson, as Robertson wanted, but at the same time retain Kitchener. And this culminated in this thing that first got me interested in this, and which I think it's Beaverbrook describes as reading like uh, an agreement between two sovereign states. That is the, uh, the Kitchener-Robertson agreement. So tell us about it. What was this about? Well, it's an agreement, you know, and it's tucked away. You'll see it right. And it normally gets quickly glossed over because it's quite dry. It's an agreement between Kitchener and Robertson, whereby Robertson became chief of the general Imperial General Staff and the dominant voice in British strategy. This extra authority was almost totally at the expense of Kitchener, but also partly at the expense of the cabinet. But it required Kitchener to stay on in the government and support Robertson. As chief of the Imperial General Staff, Robertson almost totally was now almost totally independent of the Secretary of State. Uh, this required some fairly tense negotiations. Essentially, Asquith passed the buck to Robertson and said, Kitchener's back. He's threatening to resign. Can you go and sort it out with him you and see if you can reach an accommodation? Asquith loses control of the negotiations, essentially. So on the 4th of December, 
Robertson meets Kitchener at Kitchener's house, York House, and tells him his plans, which he thought the meeting went well, even though all what he was doing was leaving Kitchener pretty much with uniforms and recruitment, and that's about it. He went for this ride with General Clive, I've already mentioned, and he explained what he said to Kitchener on this ride with General Clive. And he said bluntly that a professional man, i.e. a soldier, was impossible as Secretary of State under his, Robertson's, scheme. What he was basically saying was you couldn't have two soldiers advising the government, Kitchener and him. It had to be him and him alone. Um, his firm belief was in this idea of the one-man show, but also that the army must be utterly unified in the voice that it presents to the government. And that was to be a crucial issue in terms of his relations with Haig um, later on as well. So Kitchener got the letter from Robertson the next day, which itemised his demands, this uh, contract, the, the agreement, uh, looked at it and went off, to Kitch uh, went off to Asquith and promptly resigned, which was not what they wanted. Asquith, at his most persuasive, talked him round and said, please meet Robertson a second time to discuss it further, um, which is obviously, as I say, a measure of Kitchener's in, uh, perceived importance. At this point, curiously, Robertson said, well, perhaps he should resign because he still also realised that Kitchener was very important to the war effort. So anyway, they met for a second time. This was on the 10th of December. Kitchener was on his way to Paris. So Robertson Motors from BEFHQ meets him at Calais. They initially meet there and then travel by train to Paris and then to the Hotel Creon, which is in the Place de la Concorde. Um, um, it's still there, where they meet and discuss it further until the early hours of the morning. Essentially, Kitchener is kind of in the library, brooding quietly, realising that he, he is, to all intents, going to be fired and removed from responsibility. Up in his in his bedroom on the first floor is Robertson, and scuttling in between them was the Eminence Grise of the defence establishment, Lord Isha, acting as the go-between. Uh, there's a highly suspect description of these events written by Lord Lord Isha, if you can find it on the internet. Um, eventually, at one in the morning, Kitchener folds his hands and concedes. At that point, Robertson marches out of his, his bedroom into a colleague's, pops his head through around the door and says, the bugger signed, and marched off down the hallway with a grin. What did they agree? As Robertson wanted, the War Committee, not the Cabinet, was to be the supreme directing authority. And so as to be able to act dis decisively, the War Committee, the Dardanelles Committee, I should say, had been renamed the War Committee uh, in November. So the, But it was the same body of people, or just about. The, this new War Committee should receive all advice on matters concerning military operations through one authoritative channel only, and that was to be the Chief of the Imperial General Staff. All orders from the War Committee were to be issued by the Chief of the Imperial General Staff. Here, the agreement came across a small constitutional hiccup because Robertson is not in Parliament, Kitchener, as a Lord, was, and the orders, strictly speaking, should come from somebody who can answer to them in Parliament. So the essentially a side deal was agreed so that uh, the orders were in Kitchener's name, but Robertson wrote the signature. Now, obviously, this was a risk for Robertson because it meant possibly that uh, Kitchener still retained some authority. So he insisted on a side deal whereby Kitchener agreed to absolutely support 
everything Robertson said in Cabinet. Kitchener called it our bargain. And he stuck by this deal, even though Robertson many times suggested things which Kitchener didn't particularly like, to the day he died in June 1916. But it's worth realising that this little side deal wasn't severely tested by events. You know, Kitchener died before the Battle of the Somme, for example. The other little hiccup was that members of the cabinet were quite appalled by the power that had accrued to Robertson by this agreement. And uh, they argued it long into the night, trying to find a way of getting out of it. But essentially, Robertson had them over a barrel. He was the only candidate. It was a mess. Uh, They needed him to sort it out. And so they reluctantly agreed. And also Asquith had also uh, delegated authority um, to Robertson. So um, they reluctantly agreed. So why is all that so significant? Robertson, with Haig, dominated British policy for the next two years, and his authority was underpinned by powers conferred under this agreement, as confirmed, and Robertson insisted on this, by an order in council. Robertson was quite canny. You know, he wasn't this bluff-hearty officer that you might think of. He was an extremely canny man. He'd worked his way up a structure from very humble beginnings. He knew how power worked. That was his core asset. He understood how power worked within the army and in an institution like the army. What he was doing was sorting out the organisational structure so that the army had the authority to control events. And that's what he got. Lloyd George hated it, of course. Lloyd George hated it, of course. Now, there's a surprise. He wanted not only to retain control within the cabinet, because that's where he operated, but also he hated the pro-Western stance that Robertson was definitely bringing with him. Twice he failed to undo it. How was Lloyd George foiled? How was the Welsh wizard defeated by by Robertson? Good question. Um, Well, it happened twice. First of all, when Kitchener died, as I've mentioned, uh, Lloyd George was the obvious choice to take over the position of uh, Minister for War. And and he hummed and hard about it. And he said to Asquith that he wanted the Kitchener-Robertson agreement renegotiated so that the Minister of War got more (coughs) power. Uh, But Asquith vetoed that change. Uh, uh, Secondly, when Lloyd George in December 1916 was uh, uh, negotiating to become Prime Minister, a cabal of uh, unionist ministers, including Austin Chamberlain, I know for one, uh, and Lord Derby, came to see Lloyd George and said they would only join the government if and under the condition that the Robertson-Kitchener agreement was retained and with the powers that had been agreed. A couple of concluding thoughts for the listeners about the man, uh, not just about him, but about you know what happened afterwards, um, so we can get the context of this series of protracted negotiations that took place in late 1915. One of the problems is that we see the story of the man and it clouds our view of what the man actually achieved. We applaud his much, um, his great rise that came up from being a trooper up to being field marshal. But it's then used as a bit of a cover before damning him with faint praise in his role of chief of the Imperial General Staff. I mean, Lloyd George, not untypically, his memoirs are an example where he saw it says, oh, well, he just came through an administrative route and he wasn't a proper fighting general. But historians are also guilty of the same sort of uh, thing, of not seeing past this humble man, this bluff soldier who rises to the top. I mean, this is the man that uh, when anybody presented 
ideas to him that he didn't approve of would just say, well, I've heard different. Uh, he never pronounced his H's, by the way. Uh, so General Haig was General Haig. But anyway, he'd just say, well, I've heard different. He's also penalised because of his loyalty to Haig and so tarred by the same brush. When almost certainly uh, the war would have been fought on the Western Front, but in a different manner had Haig been, had uh, Robertson been in charge rather than Haig. So what we have to understand about this, this man is what a considerable institutional infighter he was to get his way. As Hankey had said, he knew what he wanted and he usually got his way. Above all, he understood the army. Secondly, he was the first modern chief of the Imperial General Staff. The job that's done today is a derivative, a direct derivative of the one that Robertson created. Robertson had more power than the current uh, job holders. But it was a very ill-formed job at its inception in 1903-4 and had remained so thereafter. It was Robertson who made it the strategic advisor with real power and authority. And thirdly, it's kind of subject um, to another conversation, really. But he brought order and direction to British strategy. He may be criticised, but actually order and direction to strategy is a much sought after commodity, usually. And he should be, it should be recognised that that's exactly what he brought. So where can people learn more about Robinson? Uh, well, we're, we're, not exa- we're not exactly flushed with stuff, I have to say. He is um, totally underwritten. There's a good lecture on YouTube by a guy called uh, Justin Saddington, uh, curator of uh, printed books at the National Army Museum, or he was in 1911 when this was done. That's quite easy to 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 find on YouTube. Uh, as regard books, uh, there are a few, and uh, sadly, they're not very, they're by and large not cheap. David R. Woodward is the historian you usually go to. He has written two books, Lloyd George and the Generals, and you see that's £32 in paperback. But he's also written a, um, a military biography of uh, Sir William Robertson, which is a bit of a rehash of the other book. Uh, that's considerably more expensive. Uh, there's only one full biography that I can find, and that's quite old by. A guy called Victor Bonham Carter, and it's a bit of a hagiography. Uh, it comes under two names, so don't be confused. One's, it's also called uh, 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 Strategy of Victory, I think. Um, so that's the American edition. It's not a different book. Uh, if you want to uh, read more about the general subject of strategy, there are two books by David French uh, on British strategy in the war, one of which is £133. Uh, um, and finally, of course, Robertson himself wrote two books, uh, one, his autobiography, uh, shortly after the war, which I think was probably just to earn a few quid, because once he ceased to have, have an official position, he would have been uh, uh, not had much income. Um, and he also wrote a very oddly structured but well-balanced account of civil-military relations during the war called uh, Soldiers and Statesmen. I'm sure if he'd read what uh, Lloyd George wrote about him after Robertson had died, I don't think he'd have been quite so well balanced in that book. I'm uh, myself researching and uh, uh, William Robertson, but I have to say I'm only in year two of what will be a five or six year project. However, if I can do a plug, if you're in the Cheltenham area, I am spe- in August, I am speaking to the Western Front Association branch on um, on the subject of Robertson under the title of L'homme terrible, which is what Joffre called him. Ross, thank you very much for your time. That's okay. Much I've much enjoyed it. 
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.